0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is
0: Amy Britton calling from The Post.
1: This is Peter Jamison from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports.
0: I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 6th. Today, the escalating trade war with China. What congressional retirements mean for the Republican Party and the legacy of tony morrison
1: sometimes you feel like you're like trying to describe a drunken party from the night before the next morning to someone who wasn't there and halfway through it's like they don't know what you're talking about and it doesn't make any sense <laughs>
0: So, I love the idea that the U.S.-China trade war is a drunken party.
1: It feels like it. Sometimes, you know, you don't know who's on what side or who's listening to who. How the
0: fist fight started, but all of a sudden there's like glass and bottles and overturned tables everywhere. Right.
1: Someone has a shirt pulled over their head. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it, it's getting ugly, for sure. And the pain is being spread. Damien Paletta covers economic policy for The
0: Post. So the last time that I checked in on this, it seemed like the U.S.-China trade war was quieting down, that the U.S. and China were in negotiations, that it looked like a trade deal was imminent, that this was going to be a success for President Trump. But then all of a sudden, it seemed like everything changed.
1: Right. The stock market was at an all-time high. It seemed like Americans had kind of moved past the trade fear. And we even heard out of the president this idea that the Chinese wanted to wait until after the 2020 elections to kind of deal with them and that he was fine with that, he said. Then, two of his top advisors, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, and Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, came back from meetings in Shanghai with senior Chinese officials and delivered news to the president that they had not been able to make any progress at all, that the Chinese were really dug in and wouldn't even give the president a small token victory that he could show American farmers and American voters. And that that's when the president said, enough is enough. This process isn't working. It's time to really play hardball with the Chinese. He announced that he was going to impose tariffs on $300 billion of Chinese goods. The stock market immediately tanked, lost about 1,600 points or 6% of its value. It's and things a lot. <laughs> right. It's a lot. And things really escalated and got uglier ever since. And what does that escalation look like? Over this weekend, China finally responds, and they respond by retaliating. First, they allowed their currency, the yuan, to weaken against the dollar.
0: Which kind of confuses me, because why would China want its currency to be weak?
1: Let's say you have one American dollar and you go to China, and $1 is worth five Chinese yuan. So you can buy five yuan worth of stuff. If the yuan weakens and it's worth 10 Chinese yuan, then you can buy a lot more Chinese stuff, which is great for the Chinese, because they can sell a lot more of their stuff to the U.S., but... For American companies, the Chinese can't purchase as much because their currency is weaker.
0: All of a sudden, it's much more attractive for me to buy things from China versus buying things from American producers.
1: Exactly. So it's kind of a lose-lose scenario because, like you mentioned, their currency is getting weaker. And it's not great for them because the people kind of get poor and the companies get poor. But it makes their products more attractive. And so, anyway, the the yuan weakens. China makes clear they're not going to buy any more ag products, not even a little bit. And the White House gets furious late Monday night. uh, The Treasury Department labels China currency manipulator, which is kind of a, you know, finger wagging move that doesn't have any real implications, but it's something that they've been threatening to do for years and haven't done since the 1990s. And lo and behold, you know, we've got a full blown trade war and currency war happening simultaneously.
0: And the fact that President Trump is labeling China as a currency manipulator. That's something that he had threatened in the past. But why is it a big deal that he actually gives them this label?
1: It's one of the few arrows that the White House has in its quiver, to be honest. It's almost like me labeling you a blue tiger. I mean, what does that even mean? It doesn't mean (laughs) anything. It's just a phrase. It doesn't do anything to call them a currency manipulator. By law, it allows the Treasury Secretary to enter into discussions with the IMF, about ways to address what China's doing. It doesn't force China to do anything. But as we all know, having been through high school, calling things names tends to ratchet it up, right? It might be silly. It might not accomplish what you want it to, but it does mean things are getting uglier and messier. And that's what we're seeing happen right now.
0: And this label of currency manipulation, is that in turn having an effect on the stock market?
1: Well, it happened after the stock market closed, which was interesting. And this morning, I mean, obviously a lot can change, but it seems like the the stocks have not continued their freefall. They haven't recovered near what they lost on Monday, but it seems like everyone's kind of waiting to see what's going to happen next.
0: Well, so how quickly will we start to see effects of these various escalations in the trade war? How, How quickly will consumers see that?
1: Very soon. I mean, the new tariffs are supposed to go into effect September 1st. $300 billion of goods that are coming into the United States. Obviously, September 1st is the beginning of when companies are importing products for the holidays. Uh, Those costs are going to go up for consumers. So the costs are going to get passed along. There's no way to avoid it. The president's already imposed tariffs on like $250 billion of goods, but that was mostly, you know, machinery and things that don't affect consumers. This last tranche is the consumer products, the staples that you buy every day. And so that'll definitely, you know, be felt by people all over the country.
0: And is President Trump getting blowback from the fact that things are escalating rather than de-escalating and that both consumers and people like American farmers are going to be feeling this more and more?
1: The farmers seem like they had cut him some slack until recently. And now they're really worried about kind of a second harvest season being lost. And he's under a tremendous amount of pressure. He's already authorized about $30 billion in payments to go to farmers to try to you know, ameliorate them during this showdown. Um, Republicans in Congress are getting more nervous, worried that if this is protracted and keeps going, it's going to hurt the economy even more and dim their prospects for the 2020 elections. So there's a lot of economic and political pressure on the president. But what we're hearing is that even though many advisors, internal and external, are telling him this is dangerous, he feels like this patient cautious approach that he's been using is not working and he needs to be more aggressive and adversarial in order to get China's attention. He really feels strongly that when he threatened to hit Mexico with tariffs a few weeks ago, Mexico immediately came to the table and did some of the things he wanted on immigration and you have to play hardball he believes in order to get things done.
0: But what is his end game here and what are the chances that we're going to see basically a positive outcome? come out from this escalation.
1: You're asking the most fundamental question that no one knows the answer to, even inside the White House. What is the plan? What is the off-ramp? How does this end for consumers and for businesses? Nobody knows. I mean, the president has made his career as a real estate developer, right, where everything's kind of a negotiation and hardball tactics, and you end up at a price that's nowhere near your initial asking price. And so whether he wants just some kind of minor adjustments in the U.S. trade relationship with China or whether he wants a completely overhauled dynamic. We don't know the answer to that. And whether this does end up in a good place or not, it's really hard to know. What I do know is that it's going to take a long time to get to where he has said he wants it to get to. You know, these are the two biggest economies in the world. And so if he really wants the changes that he says he wants, it's going to take a long time and, a, you know, a lot of pain before they can get there. From China's perspective,
0: are, are they starting to suffer in this? Or do they feel like they are still at an economic advantage and that's why they're able to dig their heels in and not negotiate with the Trump administration? Great
1: question. The Chinese economy is weakening from where it was, for sure. And obviously with these riots in Hong Kong, they're under a lot of pressure to kind of get things in order and to exert some control. And it makes it harder for them to capitulate to the US to be seen as weak when they have all these other domestic things going on. And so when you have two presidents who are kind of embattled at home, trying to exert, you know, dominance over the other, it makes it harder for them to cut a deal because they both want to be seen as strong leaders. And so I think that's one of the things we're, we're seeing right now is this ratchets up two leaders trying to exert their dominance over each other and to see what the pain threshold is. I know from having covered China for, you know, quite a while that they look at these things in the arc of their history. They are not going to be dragged into some, you know, cheap concession by a president who could be gone in 15 months. They will hold out, they will wait it out. Even if it means short-term pain in their economy, they will wait. And this is a president who's like very instinctive and wants things immediately. And so how those things resolve themselves, we don't know.
0: Damian Paletta covers economic policy for The Post. I have a question. Can you name all of the Republicans in Congress who are about to retire? Like off the top of your head. Uh, okay. That's Mike DeBonis, and he covers Congress for The Post.
2: We have Tom Marino, who not only retired but resigned and has now been replaced. Mm-hmm. Susan Brooks of Indiana. Rob Woodall of Georgia. Mike Conaway Texas Pete Olson of Texas, Texas. Kenny Marchin of Texas, Will Hurt of Texas. You're on a roll. Paul Mitchell of Michigan, Bradley Byrne of Alabama, Greg Gianforte, Montana, (laughs) Martha Roby of Alabama, and there's one more. Rob Bishop. Rob Bishop. How could I forget Rob Bishop?
0: (laughs) That was pretty. That's pretty impressive.
2: That's why they pay me the big bucks.
0: Mike was just taking off all these Republicans in the House that are announcing their retirements because, well, there are
2: just so many of them. The main message that you get from seeing 12 Republicans retire is that you have a lot of incumbents who are not having fun in the minority and they see no real chance of returning to the majority anytime soon. So... It's basically a message to the rest of the world that I may win my race in 2020, but I'll be back in the same crappy situation that I am in right now. Then sitting in the minority, not passing laws that I want to pass. Instead, I'm Splitsville. So
0: one of the members that you've been specifically focused on in terms of his retirement is Will Heard of Texas. Why is he so important
2: as a retiring member? A number of reasons. Number one, he is the only African American member, Republican member of the House. Will Hurd was a former intelligence officer. He came with serious national security credentials. But more than that, he is somebody who has just practiced a different brand of politics, of Republican politics, you know, that that has been less Grounded in this politics of grievance and resentment that President Trump has become so expert at exploiting, you know, he is really a exemplar of what Republicans wanted their party to be before Donald Trump. Among other things, Wilhurt has also tried to really build a reputation for bipartisanship. He worked with Democrats on a, a proposal to solve the Dreamer problem, the DACA issue. And he's also maintained a lot of very friendly relationships across the aisle, none friendlier than with Beto O'Rourke, who used to represent the adjoining congressional district in El Paso. The two of them had a very famous sort of trip home from Texas uh, in a car after their flights got canceled. And, Wait, they uh, actually drove to, from D.C. to Texas? They drove from Texas to D.C. after I think there was a snowstorm in D.C. and some, a bunch of flights got canceled. So oh. they ended up renting a car and driving, I guess, a couple thousand miles, maybe, maybe not quite that far. Wow. we um, got <laughs> a long way to go. short time to get there. That should be a movie. Uh, it was a movie because they basically live streamed the whole thing on Facebook. Somebody
1: will somebody let us know what we do with this easy pass. I don't drive it.
2: And Washington. everyone got to watch it.
1: Now, charge your phone, girl.
2: But it's hard to
0: imagine a lot of other... Republican members of Congress being game to sit in a car with a Democrat, especially like a, a super liberal like better work Democrat for several days on end.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm not aware of any other Republicans or Democrats for that matter who have done sort of like this like buddy comedy act, <laughs> uh, live streamed on Facebook. This All right,
1: team, no more calls. This is this is Beto and ours finally. Uh, finally, uh, We don't have to hear it, but just imagine that song, The Final Countdown, playing you know, right now.
3: This is our final countdown.
2: Uh, uh, okay, so you know, the obvious first question to start with is, uh, why did you decide to leave
3: Congress?
0: So in announcing his retirement, did he say... I don't like being part of the Republican Party anymore.
3: Um, I'm leaving Congress, so I think I could help the country in a different way. And, and I'm interested in, in pursuing, you know,
1: my lifelong, lifelong passions on technology. At, 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 at...
2: He was not quite that explicit, but he, he made some observations that were telling. I mean, he talked about the rhetoric that President Trump engaged in, telling the four liberal Congresswomen to go back where they came from. When you,
1: someone, when you imply that because someone doesn't look like you, is um, maybe in saying that Tim did to go back to Africa or
3: wherever, um, you're implying that they're not an American and you're implying that they have less, less worth than you.
2: He didn't say explicitly, that's not why I'm coming back, but he, he used that to sort of paint a picture of why this was no longer appealing to him. So that is not the point.
1: Right. Those—that's not where the conversation should be. The conversation should be on those things, like you know, um,
3: how we continue to solve problems and move people up the economic ladder. Right, like that's—that's that's where the conversation should be.
0: And is this true for many of the other members who are leaving? That—that that they feel that they are seeing the the rhetoric and the way of doing business within the Republican Party start to shift in a way that they're
2: uncomfortable with serving in Congress is, you know, there's a lot of high points and there's a lot of low points. And if you're your average Republican House member, some of the high points were when you had the majority, you could, you know, pass legislation, you could do oversight, you got invited to the White House, you could, you know, propose amendments that got included in major bills. Like you can make a difference. The downside of that was that, you know, with power comes accountability. You have to answer for what you're doing, you have to answer for what the president's doing. In Donald Trump's Washington, Republicans have to react to Donald Trump's rhetoric on a daily basis. So when you still have all of that negative stuff and you have to basically be held accountable for what the president's doing, but at the same time, you don't have the power that you once had to pass legislation do things for your community, the calculus changes. And I think for a lot of these members, it's just no longer an appealing proposition to them. So why is it a problem for the Republican Party that all of these people are leaving? So there's a very practical reason why it's a problem, which is it's a lot harder to hold an open seat than it is one where there's an incumbent already running. You have a member who has a track record of winning their races. We saw that happen in 2018. There were just a record number of Republican retirements and Democrats picked up a good number of those seats.
0: And Republican leadership used that as a reason for why they lost the House. They basically said all these people retired and it was really hard to hold on to their seats.
2: That's right. Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Minority Leader, said it as recently as Sunday. You know, he blamed the retirements for making it harder to keep the House. We're experiencing a little bit of deja vu here. You know, the the larger concern is that you see a brain drain out of your party conference, that they're going to be replaced by people who are new to the process. But these are also members who are going to be, you know, responding to a different set of motivations necessarily than folks who have been here for a while. Generally speaking, the younger members have been a little less predictable for leadership than than the veteran members. And that's, you know, always a concern.
0: It's also notable that One, two, three, four of these people are from Texas. What do you think that says to you?
2: Democrats see Texas as being a state that's in the midst of this rapid transformation from you know, what was once a largely rural state with a few urban centers to one that's being a largely suburban state that just happens to have some uh, some rural areas surrounding it. So Democrats see the future of their party, the future of their caucus, and being able to appeal to suburban voters who don't have a problem with diversity, they don't have a problem with more liberal social positions. And to the extent that Texas becomes a swing state, that's uh, really a hugely troubling thing for Republicans because Texas is really where the beating heart of the Republican Party has been.
0: The Democratic Party has always had the edge in terms of the diversity of of its voters and of its members. But Republicans have always made a case that they too can be the party for black people, for Latinos. But it seems like the fact that the Republican Party in Congress has actually gotten whiter and whiter, especially over the last couple of years, that they might not be able to make that argument anymore.
2: That's right. And it's not only the fact that you know, you're looking at the very real possibility that there may not be any Black House Republicans in 2020. Look at the number of women. You, you, between Susan Brooks of Indiana and Martha Roby of Alabama, you've got two of, I believe, 13 Republican women who are saying that they're not going to run again. Now, you know, the, there's a lot of effort being made in terms of recruiting female candidates for Republican races, but th- those efforts have been spotty at best. The tale of diversity for the Republican Party right now is not a positive one. It's becoming a more male, more white House Republican conference. And that's been, I think, is is true largely even more broadly across the party, that that's the tale that's being told in a country that's getting more racially diverse, not less.
0: What has Republican leadership said about how they view their prospects for winning back the house in 2020 in light of all of this churn within the party,
2: so the hopes that Republicans have of bringing the House back rests almost solely on President Trump and his ability to motivate Republican voters to come out and vote next year. Basically, the theory of 2018 being that Democrats came out in record numbers to vote in that midterm election while Republicans, didn't quite do that. Now, the fact that President Trump is on the ballot, will that cause more Republican voters proportionally to show up next year than Democratic voters did? And that's a big open question. And I think that that's something that, you know, a lot of people are going to be spending a lot of time thinking about.
0: It strikes me that one of the reasons why we've seen so many Republicans fall into lockstep with the president is because it's so politically expedient for them, right? That, that there is not a lot to be gained by going up against Trump, and there is a lot to be lost. But it seems like now we're starting to see the beginnings of the collateral damage of that, that you are starting to lose these members that were valuable in various ways, and that there is a price to be paid for being the party of Trump.
2: That's right. I mean, when you have a president who basically demands absolute loyalty on all things, it can be exhausting to try and walk a line that falls short of that. And what you've seen is that a number of these Republicans who are retiring from the House have have tried to walk that line and have basically decided that it's not worth it to them anymore. And I know that that's worrying some Republican leaders, and uh, I think it has some serious implications for the party even after President Trump's off the scene.
0: Mike DeBonis is a congressional reporter for The Post. Reporter Robert Moore interviewed Congressman Will Hurd in Texas. And now, one more thing. When I was in eighth grade, I discovered a book on my mom's shelf. It was called Sula. And when I read it, it completely changed the way I thought about myself and my place in the world. It was about loneliness and connection and women coming into their own and discovering the power of their own minds. And it was about being black. Tony Morrison was the author of that book and many others. The Bluest Eye, Beloved, Song of Solomon. She died on Monday at the age of 88.
3: So in the opening essay in The Source of Self-Regard, it's called Peril, and it was about the dangers of censorship and the dangers of, of when artists are silenced. And she writes that, quote, Certain kinds of trauma visited on peoples are so deep, so cruel, that unlike money, unlike vengeance, even unlike justice, or fights, or the goodwill of others, only writers can translate such trauma and turn sorrow into meaning, sharpening the moral imagination. A writer's life and work are not a gift to mankind, they are its necessity. I'm Bilal Qureshi. I'm a writer and occasional contributor to The Washington Post's book world. Well, I think Toni Morrison has been a mythical figure in American literature for a long time. I mean, she won the Nobel Prize in literature and was the first African-American woman to do so. Her novels grappled with the entire range of history of the black experience in this country. But beyond that, about women, about love, about family, about home. So she took this sort of very specific experience of America that she had and found a way to write in a way that spoke to global audiences and earned her the highest award in literature.
4: Generally speaking, women's work has been uh, reduced to regional or merely, or um, people compliment ethnic writers by saying or implying that they are as good as mainstream writers. And whereas I understood the compliment, I thought it would be better for me, at least in the late 60s and early 70s, to establish once and for all that all three of those things play. I'm Black, I am a woman, and I'm a writer,
0: and they go together. Toni Morrison gave her Nobel lecture in December
4: 1993. We die. That may be... The meaning of life but we do language that may be the measure of our lives
3: tony morrison also always talked about how important it is to to sort of be very critical about the language that we read the language that we read in the media the language that we hear in our societies the words that people use to be very awake to them the
4: systematic looting of language can be recognized by the tendency of its users to forego its nuanced, complex, midwifery properties for menace and subjugation. Oppressive language does more than represent violence, it is violence. Does more than represent the limits of knowledge, it limits knowledge sexist language, racist language, theistic language, all are typical of the policing languages of mastery and cannot, do not permit new knowledge or encourage the mutual exchange of ideas.
3: I think in reading her again and, and sort of having come back to her work in this decade of my life, I'm just reminded that, yeah, she has something to say to all of us. And, you know, I'm not a black woman, but I certainly feel that her art allows you to inhabit that subjectivity, to, to see what that experience of the world is like. And that's the extraordinary power of her work. And that's why I think so many people are paying tribute to her because her work um, transcended any narrow categories that it may have been placed in. So many of the things that she has been grappling with in her work her entire career are the exact same questions that we're talking about right now American identity, racism, representation, white supremacy, gender, politics, uh, self regard. And I think that idea really has stayed with me that in the face of sort of dehumanization, degradation, a culture that doesn't see you, that renders you invisible, that commits violence against who you are as a person, as, a, as an individual, as a citizen, what does it mean to have self-regard? What does it mean to have the confidence and the pride and the power to make art and to express your view of the world? So that, for me, feels so urgent to any of us who are living in America today, especially those of us who are maybe people of color or people who have immigrant backgrounds, You are constantly surrounded by this language of who belongs and who doesn't. And I think Toni Morrison offers a lot of answers to a lot of those questions.
0: Bilal Qureshi is a contributor to The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And a special shout out to folks who have left reviews of our show. People like Carly Roxanne and Civil Sparky, who recently gave five-star ratings. Reviews help other podcast listeners discover the show. So if you're a fan of post reports, log into Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.